Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Snafu. Please visit our website and our Patreon page. The link for those are down in the show notes. There you can find all kinds of cool bonus content, such as pictures of the characters, maps of the airfield, Q&A episodes, and much, much more. This podcast contains explicit content that may not be suitable for some audience members. Listener's discretion is advised. Mills entered through the waste compartment door and struggled to stand up. The floor was covered in empty 50 caliber shell casings and frozen pools of blood. His heated suit was soaked in fear-driven sweat, and his face was red from the cold air that had scraped against his skin for the last seven hours. Mills stood in complete shock as he looked at what felt like a bad nightmare unfolding before him. Lying before him were two gunners, laying on the floor, lifeless. The left side waist gunner laid on his left side, and his right arm was flung over his body. The gunner had a river of blood flowing from his chest cavity. Mills couldn't see the gunner's wound, and he didn't want to. The right side waist gunner laid on his back, with his right hand resting on the left gunner's body. He had several small puncture wounds to his left thigh, and the small section of armor plating underneath the gunner's window was peppered with dense and small holes cut into the thick plating. It looked like a flak shell had gone off not too far from the gunner, and while the armor plating looked to have taken most of the fragments, the open window above it where the gunner shot his gun from did nothing to stop the remaining incoming pieces of shrapnel. The gunner's face was torn apart, beyond any recognition. His throat had been obliterated, along with his entire upper body. Mills looked up in the radio compartment, where he saw the radio operator being lowered onto a stretcher by three medics. The radio man had a white scarf wrapped around his head, covering a wound just above the temple. The radio operator's right upper arm also had significant sized wounds, most likely from shrapnel. The scene was so vile that it made Mills quickly exit the waste compartment where he flew himself down onto the grass and began vomiting. As he sat outside on the grass, he saw two fellow airmen opening the ball turret from the back hatch, exposing the lifeless body of the man inside. He was scrunched up like in the fetal position. Mills watched as they carried the young man out of the hatch and laid him onto a stretcher. The chaplain rushed over, apologizing for being late, and began praying over the man. Mills watched in horror and then closed his eyes and tried to wake himself up from the nightmare that he seemed to be stuck in.
Saturday morning, March 4th, 1944, the United States Army Air Force Station 186, Thurlow, England, 0721. Mills had lifted himself up out of his bed and was now staring at the other side of the hut. Fear pulsated through his veins and his breathing was quick and persistent. He knew that he was alive, and once he realized that he was dreaming, he felt an overwhelming feeling of relief wash over him, like a wave over a sandy shore. He looked around the room and saw nobody was in it. All the other beds were empty and made up. Mills then looked over to his left and saw that Al was getting dressed and looked concerned. There was a moment of awkward silence between the two men before Al asked him, Nightmare? Yeah. I haven't had one of those in a long time, Mills said, looking at Skimpy's empty bed, which was between his bed and Al's bed. You normally talk in your sleep, but never anything like that. What was it about? Al asked as he buttoned his green fatigue shirt, which he had over his white thermal long underwear. It was just, um, it was just a nightmare. Anyways, no sense of talking about it. Where is everyone? Mills asked, quickly moving past the embarrassing feeling that he was now filled with. I'm guessing breakfast. It's just weird that they all left without waking us. Al commented as he sat down on his bed and put on his boots. It is weird, although he's kind of a weird kid. Do you remember that time we were... As Mills talked, Al finished up getting ready by throwing his 82 leather bomber jacket over his fatigues. Once he did, he realized that his notebook was no longer lying on the shelf above his bed. Al stopped for a moment and wondered if he had misplaced it. He remembered clearly putting the notebook on the shelf before they all went to bed. Then he realized most likely what happened to it. He interrupted Mills by saying, That son of a bitch! Let's go! Al walked past Mills and patted him on the shoulder as he made his way to the front door of the hut. Wait, I'm not ready! Mills yelled out. Well then move faster! Al shouted as he opened up the door of the hut and exited it. A few moments later, Al and Mills had arrived at one of the enlisted men's mess halls. The inside of the large quadset hut smelled like a typical cafeteria, mixed with the smell of sweat-stained clothes, cigarettes, and stale coffee. The room was thriving with chatter as nearly every table was full of hungry airmen. Al walked up to the center of the hall and looked for who he suspected was the thief. After searching the entire hall, he proceeded to walk through the small hallway that connected the hut to the one next to it. In that hall, the tables weren't nearly as full, and so Al was able to see if the person he was looking for was in that room. Not too long after standing in the hall, he saw the culprit sitting at the table to the left of the room and off towards the back. It was Willie and the rest of the men from their hut. Al and Mills made a beeline over to the table, and as Al came closer, he saw that Willie was reading the contents of his notebook aloud to the others at the table. Al looked mortified and yelled out, Willie, you goddamn asshole! Willie looked up with a grin on his face and bellowed, There's the man himself, come shit down! Al continued to walk up to Willie and squeezed himself between the table his crew was sitting at and the table that was behind them. As he did, he raised his fists up and punched Willie on the side of his head, followed by a few punches to Willie's face and neck. The room roared with men's voices as they all rushed over to watch the fight. Tommy and Beans, who were sitting on either side of Willie, jumped in to try to get him to stop hitting Willie. Mills and Prusin pulled Al off of Willie, 
who then got up, wiped the blood from his nose, and lunged at Al, getting two punches in that collided with Al's chest and side. The two boys threw a few more punches before Bruce stepped in and broke the two men up, yelling at them as he did. You're lucky I was shitting down. Do that again, I'll break your fucking legs. Willie yelled as Tommy, Beans, and Schmitty physically held him back. I'd like to see you try, you fucking wop. I'd love to hit that fake accent out of your mouth. Al shouted back, spraying blood from his upper gums as he spoke. Jodite and Mills were both holding Al back, and soon, Rob jumped in to help. Who are you calling a fucking wop? Willie hurled back at Al. He then turned to the three men holding him back and said to him, Let go of me! Just then, the mood of the room changed as two officers walked in and ran up to Willie and Al. The hell is going on here? yelled out one of the officers. The other enlisted men all went back to their tables and continued to keep their eyes on the conflict. Nothing, sir, Al softly said, wiping the blood from his mouth. This doesn't look like nothing, the other officer yelled out. Great, guys. Now we're all going to be grounded, Mills yelled out. Is that what you want? One of the officers asked. No, sir, Al and Willie both replied. Then clean yourselves up and shut the hell up. Now if the brass catches wind of this... Both of you are going to be either peeling potatoes in the back, or you'll be on letter duty. And trust me, you don't want either one of those, the officer explained. Both officers were wearing their A2 leather jackets, with the 530th Bombardment Squadron logo on the left breast. Above the logo were their leather handwritten name tags and hand-painted pilot's wings. Their name tags read, Lieutenant Bernhausen and Lieutenant Merkel. After Lieutenant Bernhausen scolded the men, Al and Willie fixed their posture, and the men who were holding them back let go. The officers turned away and walked away. Everyone in the hall kept their eyes glued to Al and Willie, waiting for them to start fighting again. Instead, the two men went back to the table and sat down. Down the road were the officer mess halls, which were two large brick-flat roofed buildings with metal windows lining the top of the walls. The inside was filled with wooden tables and wooden benches. The tables lined both sides of the large room, and a large fireplace sat on the far end of the room. The men sat at each table, which were only big enough to fit six men on each side. The identical room next door was connected by a large hallway where the mess line was. In the first building sat the boss, Jack, Andy, and Rosie, who were eating their breakfast. Sitting across from him at the table was Mickey, his chubby-faced bombardier Jim Appleton, and his skinny, bony-faced navigator, who went by the name of Einstein. The men sat at the table near the fireplace. The two tables behind them was all that separated them from the warmth of the fireplace. Both tables were jam-packed with airmen. Even though the room was full of chatter, the boss and the others at his table weren't saying anything to each other. They just sat and ate their breakfast in silence. Their breakfast consisted of two serving spoons worth of powdered eggs, a palm-sized cube of Spam, a boiled and cooked-top fried plank of potato, and a choice of a cup of black coffee or black tea. Jack, feeling uncomfortable with the fact that nobody at the table was talking, spoke up by saying, You know, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure scrambled eggs shouldn't have a green tint to them and look like something I spit out when I have a cold. At this comment, Rosie stopped eating and put his fork down on the metal compartmentalized tray and slid the tray over to the middle of the table. 
A look of disgust appeared on his face. Did that put you over the edge, Rosie? The boss asked. Rosie closed his eyes and forced himself to swallow the food that was in his mouth, almost gagging as he did. Did they ever serve us real food? Jack asked, looking over at Mickey. Yeah, they usually serve us some fresh eggs in the morning of a tough mission. Sometimes if it's going to be a suicide mission, they give you a steak and egg breakfast, Appleton responded. And it's not a nice steak, by the way, Einstein commented. No, it's not. It's more like a hamburger patty, if you ask me, Mickey added. Jeez, this is going to be a long tour, Andy remarked before he ate his potato plank. The boss noticed the looks that Mickey and the other two members of his crew were giving to Andy's comment. Trying to change subjects and trying to save Andy some embarrassment, the boss asked, So where are you guys from? Manhattan, Mickey replied. Baltimore, responded Einstein. Green Bay, answered Appleton. Mickey, I'm surprised you're from Manhattan. You don't have an accent, the boss commented. Yeah, I've never really had one. My father does. My mother has more of a New Jersey accent, Mickey explained. Did you like living in the big city? The boss asked. Mickey took a bite of his spam and nodded his head. After he finished chewing, he replied, Yeah, I loved it. It sucked during the Depression, but, you know, we could have been in uh, somewhere like the Midwest and been worse off. The boss nodded his head in agreement, and that was when Jack asked Mickey. So I always like to ask people this question. What made you join the Army Air Corps? Well, me and Appleton both have the same answer for that, don't we? Mickey said, looking over at Appleton, who was finishing his tea. Yep, all quiet on the Western Front, Appleton responded. The movie? The boss asked. Yeah, I remember seeing it when I was 11 or 12, and I wanted to be in the Army so bad when I grew up, Mickey continued. I was 14. I knew I wanted to be in the military, but didn't want to fight on the ground, Appleton added. See, that's where we're different. I wanted to fight on the ground, but I accidentally checked the Army Air Corps box and figured my fate had been made by making that mistake, so I obviously stayed in. I still have no idea how you checked the wrong box, Einstein commented. You know, that almost happened to me. The words were so close together on that page that it was hard to tell which box went to what, from the boss. See? It was an honest mistake, Mickey shouted. Alright, so you guys are joining up because of a movie. What about you, Einstein? Asked Jack. Einstein looked up and said, Well, I've always uh, been someone who likes to challenge himself, and so... When I saw all my co-workers at the chemical lab I was working at leaving to serve, I decided that it was time to do my part and I joined the Army Air Corps because I have a horrific fear of flying. You have a fear of flying? Rosie asked. Yeah, I always have. Still have it. But like I said, I like to be challenged and overcome my fear. How's that working out for you? The boss asked. Not well. The men all laughed at the comment and that was when Mickey spoke up and said, Well, that fear is going to get a lot worse after tomorrow. What do you mean? The boss asked. You guys haven't heard the scuttlebutt yet? Mickey asked. Both Einstein and Appleton seemed to know what he was talking about, but the boss and the others didn't. Okay, well, the 381st over at Ridgewell were sent up on a mission today, and we got left out, obviously, but rumor has it that they were headed to Berlin. And you know they're not going to bomb the Big B just once. Mickey explained. Berlin, are you sure? Rosie said with excitement. Pretty sure. We can always listen to Lord Ha Ha tonight at 1700 hours. We'll know then for sure, Mickey suggested. Lord Ha Ha? Andy asked. Yeah, you don't know about Lord Ha Ha? Mickey questioned. Clearly not, the boss jabbed. 
after not knowing what they were talking about either. Tell him, Einstein, requested Mickey. Oh, okay. Uh, Lord Haha is this British individual who was and still is a Nazi sympathizer. And he went over to Germany and uh, does radio broadcasting from Berlin. You can usually hear his annoying voice, usually in the morning or at nighttime. We usually hear him around 1700 hours. Wait, so what kinds of things does he say? Jack asked. Is it propaganda? Andy further questioned. Somewhat. Somehow he ends up always knowing where we're going to be going. You know, there was one time he actually listed our primary, secondary, and tertiary targets while we were still on our way over the channel. Appleton explained. So you listen to this while you're crossing over the channel? The boss asked to clarify. Yeah. We mostly listen to any music we can find over the radio, but sometimes we pick him up and listen to him. It's purely to mock the bastard, explained Mickey. Isn't that against regulation? The boss asked. All of it is, yeah. But after our first mission, we realized that as long as you're over England, it honestly doesn't hurt. Now, once we're over the channel and into enemy territory, all chatter and non-military use of the radio is then prohibited, Mickey explained. Sometimes Ronnie even allows it then, depending on the situation, remarked Einstein. It's true. Anyways, if you do allow that, do not tell any of the brass about it. Make sure you tell your crew not to spill to the commanders or to the debriefing officer, cautioned Mickey. Why do you allow that? Why even take the risk? What do you guys talk about up there? The boss questioned. Well, between me and you... Mickey began to say as he leaned in and talked at a lower than normal volume. It was something we had explained to us by another crew. When you're on your way over there, it can take hours just to form up and get into the assembly point. By the time you're crossing the channel, you've been up there for two hours, maybe sometimes even more. The anticipation and the nerves can just drive your men crazy. So we were told that allowing casual chatter over the interphone helps to pass the time and it keeps your men awake and also keeps the nerves down. I think it helps. I know it definitely helps me. I don't know how I feel about that. It's just been drilled into me since pilot training that casual chatter is prohibited, Jack commented. I know, I agree with you, Mickey explained, but it can be pretty intense going over that channel. And despite what they tell you, a relaxed gunner is better than a tense gunner. Tense gunners waste ammo. Tense gunners shoot at anything that moves even if it's ours. One of our waste gunners accidentally shot at an escort fighter. Luckily, he can't shoot to save his life, so he didn't hit it. Wow, I didn't know it made that much of a difference. Interesting stuff. You guys ever shot down a Nazi plane? Andy asked. Our ball turret gunner and tail gunner both did. None of us have, Einstein explained. What's it like to shoot one down? Andy asked. Uh, I don't know, none of us have, but you can ask one of our enlisted men. Einstein repeated and explained. He literally just said that, Andy, prodded Jack. I didn't know if one of their enlisted men had told them, Andy defended. The other person he could ask is Coca, Mickey added as he looked both at Einstein and Appleton for confirmation. Coca? The boss asked. Yeah, he's the only officer on the base who has more than one Nazi fighter kill, Mickey said. Why do you call him Coca? The boss asked. Because he's a fiend for Coca-Cola. Every time we get it in, he'll break someone's jaw just to get it, Mickey answered. So this guy, Coca, 
He shot down two fighters, Jack asked, sounding skeptical. Yeah, he wanted distinguished flying cross for it too. He was flying a mission to bomb some airfield near Brunswick, and he was leading the group. You know, Appleton, why don't you tell the story? You watched both of them happen, said Mickey. Appleton, leaning in, held his coffee cup to his hands, and with a big grin on his face, told the story. I did see it. It was incredible. First of all, those chin turrets, as I'm sure you know, Rosie, they are a pain in the back end to shoot. It's not the same as holding a physical gun. It takes some getting used to. Just tell the story, Appleton, Mickey joked. I'm getting there, anyways. So we're flying off there 3 o'clock, and a 190 comes out of formation head on. A bunch of other bombardiers, including myself, begin firing upon him, and of course, none of us are getting close to hitting him at all. But suddenly, the fighter dives down under the formation to get away, and that's when we saw tracers from Kokus Chintur go right into the fighter's underbelly. He had to have gotten two or three lucky shots all under the cockpit area. It was the luckiest shot I've ever seen. I thought for sure I imagined it, but sure enough, he became a dead stick and went straight towards Earth. And the other one? Rosie asked with an intrigued glow to his face. Okay, about three minutes later, oh and by the way, this is all happening within a few minutes of the bomb run starting. So another 190 tries to make a forward attack on us, and I don't know if he was a greenie, but the pilot didn't dive early enough, and and Koka was all ready for him, and literally popped him right out of the sky. It was unbelievable. Not to mention, he put the bombs right on the target, too. That's what got him across, along with the two fighter planes. Let's just say, when Big Week was done, and we all had that big country dinner, you guys were here for that, right? Mickey asked. No, that was a couple days before we got here. The boss said before he took one last bite of his eggs. Oh, okay, well, that night, the last night of Big Week, we had this big country dinner, and they sent in this big, huge shipment of uh, Coca-Cola. And I'm not kidding you. Everyone in our squadron gave Coca their bottle of Coca-Cola because it was just, it was unbelievable. We still talk about it. Which hut are they in? The boss asked. Uh, 297, I think. Two huts down from you. In that little circle section, Mickey answered as he was getting ready to take a sip from his coffee. The really loud ones? I can hear them sometimes shouting in the middle of the night, the boss commented. Yeah, that's because they're uh, bunking with another loud and rowdy crew. Not a good mix, Appleton explained. Which one's that? The boss asked. Do you know Major Griffith? Mickey asked. All four men shook their heads. He's a tall fellow, not as tall as you. Mickey said, looking at the boss who gave off a smile. I mean, he's got a big head. You'll know when you see him. Anyways, he's one hell of a hellraiser. No pun intended. It's incredible that it hasn't resulted in him being demoted. I mean, he's gotten into a lot of trouble, especially one time we went to London. I'll have to tell you that when I know you better. He's a little weird, even for my taste. Abbotson outright hates him, explained Mickey. You do? The boss asked. Yeah, they've been here ever since we got here. He and another crew were almost tied for the most missions completed. Four of the original crew members are past 13 missions, Mickey explained. Who has the most completed missions? asked Andy. Lieutenant Leslie. He has completed like 14 or 15 missions himself. I think maybe only six people remain from his original crew, replied Mickey. What's the name of his plane? Jack asked, eating the last piece of his spam. 
they've flown a newer ship the last two missions, but I think their ship is an older F model. It's called Bomb McGee, Mickey explained. What about the big-headed Hellraiser? I'm going to have to tell to settle the hell down next time I see him, Rosie asked. St. Lunatic. Although, I'd be careful. He's not only a major, but he's also our squadron commander, Einstein cautioned. What about the Coca-Cola guy? Andy asked. No, he's not in his crew. I still wouldn't mess with him, though. He's a rough individual, explained Einstein. No, I meant what plane is Coca-Cola part of, Andy clarified. Oh, sorry. Their ship is called uh, Hailing Mary. I know it sounds sacrilegious, but I don't think they named it. I think it was the same situation as ours, where their plane got taken up by another crew and they got shot down, and then they inherited some other plane which was already named and painted. Enlightened Einstein. I sure hope nobody takes our plane up and gets the shot down, Andy expressed. I know. Isn't it weird how that plane feels like it's a part of your crew? The boss asked, looking around the table. Wait until you've flown a mission in it. When it's all shot up and it's all you have to rely on to get you home, that ship feels like a trusty horse or something, Mickey explained. Speaking of which, we should try to get to that pub tonight, the one right off the base, the white horse or something, the boss said. You must be thinking of the wrong one. The white horse is in Haverhill. There's only one pub that I know of right off the base in Thurlow. It's called the Cock Inn, Appleton commented. That's it, the Cock Inn, affirmed the boss. I can't believe you forgot that name, Andy joked. Be mature now, Andy. Anyways, have you ever been there? The boss asked. I have, but I don't think these two have, Mickey said, pointing at both Einstein and Appleton. No, I don't really go to pubs much. Not my style, Einstein commented. Same here, Appleton added. What do you guys do for fun then? The boss asked. There's a small group of us guys who meet at the officers club and we talk literature, history, religion, ethics, pretty much anything. People call us the professors club, Appleton explained. Oh, that's swell. I want to come. Is there going to be one tonight? Andy asked. Both Einstein and Appleton looked at one another with a look of hesitancy. And that's when Appleton looked back at Andy and responded. Yeah, we more than likely will be there tonight. Sure, you can come to our squadron officers club after dinner. You'll see us there. Okay, I can't wait. I'm going to blow your mind. I was on the debate team in college, Andy boasted. Is that so? Well, then give us all you got, Einstein said. Okay, what topic do you want to talk about? Andy asked. No, 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 not now. I, I meant tonight. Show us what you got tonight, Einstein clarified. Both Jack and the boss shook their heads in embarrassment. Oh, gotcha. Andy said, grabbing his coffee cup and began drinking all the contents, making loud swallowing sounds as he did. The enlisted men had returned back to their hut in the order to gather their fresh, clean clothes and head to the showers. As they walked in, Willie was rubbing his jaw and said, Damn, Al, you know I give you a lot of shit about being a library rat, but I do gotta give you some credit. You control a mean punch. I mean, my fucking jaw hurts like hell. As he entered into the hut, Jodite walked around Willie and shot a comment, as if your jaw wasn't big enough. Ha <laughs> ha, real funny, go fuck yourself, Willie shot back as he walked to his bunk. Al walked up to his bed and put his notebook on the locker, along with his pencil, and proceeded to lock it. Willie, having noticed what Al was doing, said, You know, Al, I'm sorry for taking your book and all. That was an actual thing of me to do. As Al stood up and walked to his bed, he replied, no problem, Willie. I just get all my satisfaction from the thought that one day, 
your kids will walk into a bookstore and you'll have to buy them a book with my name on it. Alish, be honest. My fucking kids ain't going to be reading anything that you have to write about. Bully fired back. Or reading it all, Mills said aloud. Oh, you wise guys. Okay, I'll remember that next time you ask me for a smoke. You ain't getting one more from me. Dash for sure, Willie replied. When do you think we're going to get our new billets? Schmitty asked as he walked towards his bed, trying to change the tone of the room. Our own billets? Questioned Beans. Yeah, or have you noticed how many empty beds there are around the base? Bruzen asked. Yeah, now that I think about it, Beans responded. Yeah, well, I guess when this base was built, it was meant to house us and another group. But the other group got their own airfield or got assigned to another one. I don't know. But anyways, they already built the fourth runway for them and built the huts that they needed. They've just been sitting empty ever since, Prusin explained. So is that what Roosevelt Circle was meant to be? Al asked as he gathered his clothes. Yep, it was meant to be for the officers. Wouldn't it be nice to have our very own hut? That way I won't have to hear Willie's voice every goddamn day, Prusin joked. Oh, you love hearing my voice, admit it. Willie fired as he sat on his bed and tried to change his shoes. There was a moment of silence before the front door of the hut opened and a man walked in. The man had black hair and looked older than he probably was. Well, look at who the hell it is if it ain't marvelous Johnny C, yelled out Jodite. Johnny, damn, I was wondering if you were going to come back, called out Prusin. Johnny C closed the door behind him and with a huge smile on his face said, How's it going, fellas? Is my bed still warm? Are you serious? It's ice cold. Since it's been like, what, three weeks since you were last in it? Prusin responded. Good, I like my bed's ice cold. Helps me sleep. That damn hospital is hot as Satan's balls at nighttime. I must have lost ten pounds just from sweat, Johnny C. responded. Well, believe me, it doesn't get above seventy in here, Schmitty added. Good shit. Who's the new guys? Johnny C. asked looking over at Willie and the other five men. This is the new crew. They've been here for, what, four or five days? Jodi had answered. What happened to Mick and the others? Johnny C. asked. Dissing the channel, apparently. Jerry Petrobo got him. Prusin answered. Damn, that's a shame. At least they ain't dead. It's nice to meet you guys. Johnny C. called out. Mills and the others had said hello, and they introduced themselves. Johnny C. here took a piece of shrapnel on our third mission out. Schmitty said. Yeah, I asked if I could keep the piece that they took out of my side, but they said no. It's bullshit if you ask me. Anyways, where's Rob? Johnny C. asked. I don't know, actually. He was right behind us, Schmitty said. Damn, I wanted to surprise him. I heard he's all down in the dumps, Johnny C. inquired. Yeah, he's been real quiet for the last few days, Bruce added. Well, hopefully he'll show up soon, Johnny C. remarked. Yeah, I say, hey, Charlie over here, we all call him Skimpy, you'll like him. He's a fellow radio operator like yourself, and he's from your neck of the woods, Prusin said, pointing to Skimpy, who was standing sheepishly behind his bed. Waterloo, Iowa? Johnny C. asked. Skimpy nodded his head, and that was when Johnny C. walked over to him and proceeded to ask him, Where in? Um, up by the airfield. My dad was a vegetable farmer there, Skimpy answered. What's your last name? Johnny C. asked. Night, Skimpy replied. You guys had that produce stand at the farmer's market down from Broadway, right? Johnny C. asked. Yeah, Skimpy excitedly remarked. My, my, what a small world. My father owned the gas station just up the road from there. We used to go every Saturday. 
My dad's name is Bill Collins, if that rings any bells. No, I'm sorry, it doesn't. I'm sure if my dad was here, he'd know, but he knows everyone in Waterloo, explained Skimpy. That's nuts. Small world. So what are you boys up to? Johnny C. asked, turning around to face his crew. We're just about to head up to the showers. Looks like you don't need one, though, Mr. Fresh and Healed, Jodai commented. Fresh, yes. Healed, not quite. It still hurts like a son of a bitch to twist my body. I'll manage, though. Well, go get cleaned up. We can catch up when you guys get back, Johnny C. proposed. Actually, we were all planning on going out tonight. Rumor has it that we're bombing Berlin soon, and we figured tonight's our last night on Earth if you want to join us, Schmitty darkly joked. When? Johnny C. asked. Most likely after dinner, 1800 hours or so. We don't know where we're going to go yet, but we can talk about this later, Schmitty said as he headed towards the front door. Later that night, the cock inn was full. The pub, which sat on the ground floor, was bustling with officers and enlisted men from the airbase, which was only a mile or so away. Off at a table in the back of the room were Willie, Skimpy, Tommy, Mills, Beans, Al, and the men from their hut. They were scattered across four different tables. Some of them were standing and talking, others were sitting. At the table closest to the white plaster walls, partitioned by dark wooden beams, sat Beans, Mills, Jodite, and Bruce. Mills had his right arm lifted up as he took one last remaining chug of his pint glass of beer before he sat it down on the table, wiped the phone from his lip, and said, Damn, that's good. I'm gonna need another one. How in the world can you say that as a Minnesotan? How can you use the same word for this that you do for Schlitz? Beans jabbed. Mills looked across the table at Beans and said to him, It's better than the bohemian crap I have on base. Mills commented. You know, I heard from a trusted source that we're supposed to be getting a shipment of uh, a couple kegs of Schmidt. Mills and Beans both lit up with large grins. And that was when Beans spoke up and said, No way, this can't be true. It is, Jodite defended. I heard that too, Bruce added. Who's your source? Mills asked. My intelligence guy, Jodite sarcastically responded. What's his name? Mills asked. Does it matter? You don't know who he is anyways. You don't know anybody on the base. Jodite commented. Well, we don't want to be lied about something that's so incredibly important. Well, it's no lie. If a month goes by and there's no Schmidt beer to be seen, then I'll buy you and your crew a round of drinks on me, proposed Jodite. Okay, now we're cooking with gas, Beans enthusiastically expressed. Over at the table next to them was Skimpy, Johnny C, Rob, Schmitty, and Al. Schmitty and Al were both sitting at the table in the midst of a deep conversation. So, Sergeant Jones, he doesn't think that the war is going to last very long, Schmitty asked. Right. You know, see, he's so optimistic about the resilience of the human spirit, and he doesn't think that this kind of war that he's being thrown into is capable of lasting long because, you know, humans can't perform such atrocities for long. They'll either rise against their warmongering leaders or... They'll beat their swords into plows and give up on the entire idea of going to war, Al explained. Schmitty sat and pondered Al's words for a moment before he replied with the simple, Wow, that is, that is interesting. Yeah, you know, the entire story is really just about answering the question, does war go against the fabric of what makes us human? Or is war a result of us wanting to be human? Al responded. 
And how long have you been writing this book? Schmidt asked. About a year. I started when I was in basic training. You know, fighting by day, writing by night, that whole thing. But I was only able to write down just the basic plot. I couldn't write more than that until gunnery school, Al confessed. That's impressive. I can't wait to actually read it. Willie didn't do it justice, but then again, he wasn't reading it for content. Schmitty replied, Yeah, I know. He's an asshole. But thanks for taking interest in it, Al said. Oh, it's no problem. I love reading, period. My mom used to always read to us kids by the fire at nighttime. I loved it. I'm glad you're doing this. What did your father think about all of this? Schmitty asked. It's complicated. He doesn't actually know. You know, he, uh... He's glad that I joined the military, especially flying planes that he helped to uh, design. I just don't know how he would react if I told him that I wanted to be a writer. Al explained. Maybe he'll be open to it when you return home from war and you have first-hand knowledge on the subjects that you're writing about. Plus, it's going to look mighty glorious on your resume, pointed Schmitty. I guess that's true, Al said softly as he was about to take a drink from his beer. On the other side of the dark brown wooden table... Johnny C. and Rob were looking across at Skimpy, who was the happiest he had been in over a week. He had just finished his second beer, and as he forcefully sat down the empty mug down on the table, he wiped his lips and then let out a huge belch. Damn, Skimpy. You better slow down now and save some for the rest of us, Johnny C. jokingly commented. Rob had a smile on his face and watched Skimpy laugh at Johnny C.'s comment. So did you know uh, D'Angelo Newman? Johnny C. asked. I don't know. Maybe, Skimpy replied. Johnny C. proceeded to dig into his left breast pocket for a cigarette and a lighter. And as he did, he explained. You know, his dad is the uh, football coach for West High School. I was never really into playing sports, Skimpy commented. His brother owned uh, Newman's clothing shop right on Jefferson Street, down by the train tracks. Johnny C. clarified. Oh, yeah, his brother was a good friend of my dad's. Skimpy said with a smile on his face. Yeah, his, uh, his brother was uh, a coach of the football team. And uh, that's when I went up to the recruitment office. I saw him there. He's now, I think, in the 5th uh, Armored Division. I don't know, but I'll have to check with my letters. I've been keeping in touch with his nephew. I just can't believe we both lived within a few miles of each other. Our dads knew each other, and yet I don't remember seeing you or ever meeting you. Skimpy commented. And that you guys are here, Rob added. So I have to ask, what's it like up there? Skimpy asked. Johnny C's demeanor changed and his eyes and his head froze as they looked around the room. He now just stared into the corner of the room and took another puff off his cigarette. He then looked back at Skimpy and said to him, It's hell. That flight home was the longest, most agonizing couple of hours you'll ever experience. Rob nodded his head and finished the rest of his whiskey, putting the glass back on the table, and then said, Hospital's worse. Yeah, but you were only there for four days. How do you think it was being there for a month and five days? Said Johnny C. That's what I'm saying. The hospital's worse than the missions. Rob added. What's so bad about the hospital? Skippy asked. Johnny C. pondered for a moment, thinking about what he was going to respond with. Then after a minute, he said, Imagine the deepest circle of hell. If you've ever end up in the hospital or visit someone from the hospital, you'll see what I mean. 
Johnny C. fell silent, and that was when Skimpy began to feel bad for bringing the mood down. Down at the third table, which sat along the wall, adorned with paintings, pictures, and crystal glass sconce lights, sat Tommy, Willie, and Prusin. I still can't believe he called you a wop, Tommy said laughing. Yeah, that was pretty funny, Prusin said. Well, yeah, joke's on him. I'm not even truly Italian, Willie commented. Wait, you're not? Tommy asked. No. What the hell are you? Asked Prusin. Lebanese. And Italian. That's why my last name is Abram, Willie responded. I thought it was Abraham, Prusin responded. Nope, Abram. My father was from Beirut and my mother's uh, grandparents are from northern Italy, up near French. No shit. Well, you look fucking Italian there, Willie. Tommy said. And you look like a fucking Polish poster child with that honker you got on your face. Willie said, flicking Tommy's nose. Well, at least I don't have Schmitty's nose. That guy has a beak if I've ever seen one, Tommy said. That's true. Poor bastard does have one giant nose. Maybe that's why he can't shoot for shit, Prusin said. It's possible. I wouldn't be able to with that thing on my fucking face. Just then, a group of officers walked in the back of the room where the enlisted men were sitting. Tommy looked up and was shocked to see that he recognized them. Hey, oh! Tommy called out. The officers that he was looking at were the boss, Jack, and Rosie. The other officer who was standing with them, who Tommy didn't recognize, was Mickey. Hey, what's happening, fellas? I didn't know you guys were going to be here. Mickey called out in a loud voice. Rob, Johnny C., Schmitty, Bruce, Jodite, and Prusin all lifted up their heads and said hello to their pilot. You know these guys? The boss asked. Know them? These guys are my crew, Mickey said as he made a beeline to where Johnny C. was sitting and the two men gave each other a firm handshake. Mickey proceeded to ask Johnny C. when he got out of the hospital and the two men caught up. As they did, the boss walked up to the three tables and made short conversation with the men before he said, You know what? I'm feeling generous. Next round of drinks is all on me. The men all cheered, and that's when the boss asked Jack and Rosie to help him get drinks, and the three men walked up to the bar together. Later in the night, the inn was at its most vibrant. Young women from the surrounding area had joined the airmen and were bringing them good company. Off in the back of the far room, sitting in a wooden booth, was Al, Prusin, Bruce, and Schmitty. Al was four drinks in and had a lit cigarette hanging out of his half-cocked smile as he listened to Prusin tell the story of his childhood. Sitting at the table next to them, Beans proceeded to bore a young 20-year-old woman about the art of bird hunting. He then proceeded to thrust her into a state of pure disgust as he described in full detail of how to skin a rabbit. Thankfully, before he could go too far with his drunken ramble, Mills came to his rescue, stumbling across the room and sat down with them, breaking Beans' train of thought. Sitting at the table next to them was Skimpy, Johnny C., Rob, and another young British woman. Skimpy was clearly intoxicated due to his slurred speech, drowsy eyes, and his subtle body swaying as he listened to Johnny C. tell a British woman what Iowa was like. On the other side of the wall that divided the two rooms were the boss, Mickey, Jack, Rosie, Willie, Tommy, and Jodite, who were sitting at two tables which were pushed together. The boss was the happiest that he had been since they arrived in England. He seemed to not have a care in the world as he sat back, sipped on his drinks, and listened to Jodite tell funny stories about gunnery training. 
The men all came to a moment in the night where based on their body language and checking their wristwatches, it was apparent that it was time for them to start heading back to base. Wait, 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 but wait, before we go, the boss announced, getting everyone's attention. We should do a short snorter. At this, a very concerned and very intoxicated Willie leaned over and asked, What we doing, drugs? The boss got a good laugh, and so did Mickey and a few others. Oh, Willie, a short snorter is where you would take a dollar bill, and we all sign it. Whoever the dollar bill belongs to has to keep it. Next time we're all together, if they don't have the dollar bill on them, then that person has to buy drinks for the entire group. The boss explained, Sure, what the hell? I'll offer a dollar, Tommy called out. No, 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 no. It's only fitting that I do it, the boss called out as he leaned over, almost falling out of his chair. Luckily, Rosie, who was sitting next to him, blocked him. Digging for his wallet, he grabbed a dollar bill, and Mickey then offered up a pen for everyone to sign it. After everyone at the table signed it, the boss got up, walked around the wall, and had everyone else sign the bill. The boss then put the bill in his pocket, and the men proceeded to walk back to base, putting a nice and fitting end to their evening. Thank you for listening to Episode 2 of Snafu, a historical fiction podcast depicting the average life of a bomber crew in World War II. If you'd like more information about the podcast, please visit our website or our Patreon page. Both links are down in the show notes. This podcast is produced by Canso 34 Studios, a DIY project helping to raise awareness to the brave young men who sacrificed their lives in the skies over Europe in World War II. I hope we do it justice. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned next week for Episode 3 of Snafu, Lockdown. <laughs>